This is John Quint, and this is Law Disrupted, and today we are speaking with Chris Seeger of the Seeger Weiss Law Firm. Chris, where is your firm based? For 25 years, I commuted into New York City and got a little tired of that, so we still have a small office in the city, but I, uh, I'm in Richfield Park, New Jersey, which is about 15 minutes from where I live. So Chris and his firm are one of the preeminent mass tort class action firms in the United States. Chris has been involved in some of the major cases that people have heard about and read about in the news, the NFL concussions case, the Volkswagen clean diesel case, uh, numerous multi-district tort and class actions. In fact, during the period 2016 to 2019, there was a survey that showed that he was appointed to more multi-district cases as a lead counsel than any other attorney in America. Most recently, he has settled in the space, I understand, of one week or 10 days, the $6 billion 3M combat earplugs case, something that our firm actually had a role in. in Very big role. In fact, the claim was discovered by a third-year associate in a patent case back in 2012 in our Los Angeles office here. Absolutely. Uh, And he also settled uh, the case relating to the CPAP machines and breathing machines against Philips. That was all in the space of a week. Others in the past have been involved in the opioid litigation. Just many of the major mass tort and class action cases that we've all heard about. And Chris's name turns up in case after case after case. So, I mean, let me just ask you a few things about your practice, Chris. And the the first is, I saw, I read somewhere that actually you started out as a corporate defense lawyer, and then you (laughs) decided to go, depending upon how you look at it, either over to the dark side or the sunny (laughs) side of of the practice. How did you come to make that change? You know, I, I started law school late. I was a I was growing up in a blue collar household. I wanted to be a union carpenter. That was my, um, that's really what I wanted to be growing up. I had no idea I was going to wind up in law. So I, I, like I said, I have a very blue collar background. I, gra- I, di- I wound up going to college after, after graduating high school. I was, in, I was an amateur boxer. I was doing carpentry. Finally, I went to college five years after high school graduation. And then I went to law school, did pretty well in uh, college and law school. Went to Sherman and Sterling out of law school and liked it very much. I liked the people there. I still have friends there that are partners. I learned how to practice law there, but it just really kind of uh, wasn't for me. You know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't my thing. I'd always kind of seen myself as a kid as um, I had these, you know, kind of glorious ideas of what a plaintiff plaintiff's lawyer is and should be. And I kind of liked aligning myself with the folks that were, uh, you know, up, up against corporate America as opposed to defending corporate America. And I don't say that in a disparaging way. I'm just, for me, it was just ideologically, it was a right fit for me to, to leave that and go into and become a plaintiff's lawyer. And, and so you left Sherman Sterling and, and you joined some type of plaintiff's practice? Well, so actually the, from, from Sherman and Sterling, the, the partner who recruited me to Sherman and Sterling from, from law school started, a, it was around a time where the firm Moses and Singer was falling apart. He started a firm with a couple of Moses and Singer partners. You probably remember Moses and Singer. Major yeah. uh, personal injury firm is the way I think yeah. of them as. Yeah. And they, they uh, so they formed a, a firm that was really doing more creditor's rights stuff, but it was litigation. 
that's where I was really introduced to litigation. I was getting into court. And then after a few years of doing that, I left. All right. So at, at Sherman Sterling, you were doing deal work rather than litigation work? Yeah. I spent most of my time in the real estate department, believe it or right. not. All right. So this yeah. was a huge jump shift for you. You start out as an yeah. associate at a big yeah. corporate defense firm doing deal work. Yeah. And your yeah. firm has evolved to your uh, plaintiff side litigator. Yeah. Yeah. And even that was kind of a... Uh, you know, I kind of fell into that because when I when I left the firm, the second firm I was at, I was representing professional fighters. I I was an amateur boxer as a kid. I knew guys that went on to go and continue to do well. I was starting to think to myself, maybe the law is not right for me. I'm not sure I even want to be here. Maybe I'll go represent fighters and get involved, become a sports agent or something like that. I had been flown to Don King's house a few times, had a few negotiations with him, and then I start. Then I handled my first personal injury case. Uh-huh. And and I fell in love with it. Right. And believe it or not, in my first personal injury case, it was a no pay case from the defendant's perspective, and I had to go try it. My first trial, <laughs> won it, uh, did okay, and just fell in love with the whole idea of it. I mean, was it was there a case that you see looking back as really a breakthrough in your career that uh, you know really got you some notoriety and changed your the direction of your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Probably back in 2001, 2002, there was a, a drug that was withdrawn from the market called Resilin. And I wanted very badly to be appointed to a plaintiff steering committee, but I didn't really know the players. I showed up at the meetings and I was basically kicked out of the room or told, hey, go go do something else. You're not part of the club. And those guys, and I, so I went and filed a bunch of my cases in state court and elsewhere. And I stayed away from the uh, federal, the federal MDL. And they had lost a few trials. And I tried my case across the street and won it. And not only won it, but we got, you know, a yes to punitive damages. And then kind of got myself on the map and was invited by the committee to become a part of the plaintiff steering committee at that point. So if I had to trace one case that really kind of put me on the map and helped me out, it was after a string of losses by plaintiffs in in the MDL, I won one and then got invited into a case. How do these cases come to you typically? I mean, do you... Do you, I mean, in a lot of situations, and we do some plaintiff side work at our firm, yeah. we don't usually do this kind yes. of mass torts, this 3M earplugs right. thing is kind of a one-off yeah. for our practice, but we do some plaintiff side work, especially in the antitrust area uh, against banks. You know, we're, we're sometimes in the situation where we see a claim, we see a problem, but we yeah. don't have a client. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so you're in a situation where you have a claim, but you don't have a client. How often are you in that situation? How do these cases come to you? Sometimes are you in that situation where you see a claim, but you don't have a client? First of all, let me just say one thing. I had the honor of working with one of your partners who was also a friend of mine uh, who unfortunately passed away, Steve Newworth. Yeah, I worked on a couple of... Steve was one of the most brilliant lawyers I ever met in my life. And he is really sadly missed. And I'm sorry for you guys. Yeah, we miss him. Thank you for saying that. Um. You know, in the when I first started, it was difficult finding clients. I didn't have a name. I didn't have a brand. Didn't even have much money for if I wanted to advertise for clients. And you know, so in the beginning, you know, I I'd win a case. I'd take a personal injury case. I'd take whatever case I'd get my hands on. Make a few bucks. Invested in if there was a new a, a drug that was withdrawn or or you know something was going on and wanted to get involved in, I would ease my way into it. Over the years, we've had some success, so we're a little luckier, and we have a we have a nice network of law firms around the country we work with. We were lucky enough to know uh, the um, the people in your shop, for example, when they discovered 
you know, what was going on with 3M and these earplugs and uh, how they were never tested and shipped to the military. And uh, so, um, you know, cases these days now, they're a little, little easier to come by, a little easier to be retained by a municipality or even in some cases states. We, we do represent states, we represent municipalities and individuals. Uh, but it's because we have a really good network of firms right. that we've established good relationships with over the last 20 years. I mean, do you need to, uh, in your practice, keep those relationships current with uh, pension funds or states or municipalities, people who in the past, you know, entities yeah. in the past have been lead plaintiffs uh, and maybe in the future, do you nurture those relationships? I do. And, 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 you know, like any firm, you know, I've got a lot of really smart younger partners sort of coming up and folks that have learned how to do that and are good at it. You know, I got to admit after doing this for as long as I've been doing it, you get a little burnt out with on the socializing front. <laughs> so maybe I'm not jumping on a plane as often as I used to, to go meet with people and socialize and have dinner. But yeah, those relationships are very important. Um, and, you know, we do we do securities work, but typically when we do it on the plaintiff side, we're usually doing it with Robbins Geller. We have a very close relationship with those guys and they have tremendous relationships with funds. So mm. if I if I see a case or we identify a case in my office, I would call them, for example, and say, hey, is this right. something you're interested in? Do these steering committees, uh, I assume that they, there must be an overlap in the law firms that show up again and again in these steering committees. Is, is that yeah. basically true? You're dealing with on your side of the V basically the same firms in case after case? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, as you know, there's been a real push by the judiciary and academia to try to do a better job diversifying, making space for younger, newer lawyers. Um, the results of that have been some new stars have risen up and they're a pleasure and great to work with. And some folks have been thrown in over their head and they haven't done as well. I mean, it's been financially devastating to firms that aren't don't have the resources to jump into this stuff. It's a, it, this is expensive litigation, as you know, better than anybody. And, um, you really do need to have the staying power and the resources. And it's real important if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you have a plaintiff's practice, not to have all your eggs in one basket, because if that one basket doesn't do so well, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. You, you might be out of business. You know, I can, you know, for every successful plaintiff's firm that you can identify, I could probably give you one or two that have gone under smart lawyers, but just, you know, maybe didn't manage the business over, side as well got overextended i mean yeah people may not realize that prosecuting these cases often involves uh usually involves the investment of hard cash to the tune of you know seven figure even eight figure sums sometimes in investment yeah. in attorney's fees studies and the work that has to be done to deal with the class and and research yeah. and prepare the claims Absolutely. You're, you're up against the best firms in the country. You're going to need great experts. You're going to have to put the time and resources in. And, you know, Viox, which was a case I handled back in, um, you know, 04, probably wrapped up around 2008, 2009. There were over $40 million in cash and expenses invested in that case. So it's, it, it is very expensive. And it's really smart, I think, for younger lawyers who want to do this to maybe be a little patient and work their way up the ladder, you know, start on a subcommittee where the investment is smaller and get experience and then move up to a steering committee or an executive committee before they try to take on the leadership. Right. Um, so. how, can, how can a uh, young lawyer who wants to do this kind of work do that, work their way up the chain, get the attention of you know, the silverbacks like yourself who've been around <laughs> and been a lot on the leadership committees. What do you look for? How, how does somebody, a younger lawyer who's really interested in getting involved and getting a, 
a more visible role, how do they come to your attention? Yeah, so I get this question a lot when I go and teach classes for friends of mine uh, at law schools. And you know what I always say is you got to get yourself noticed. You know, I'm I'm a little old fashioned that way. I'm not a big fan of throwing people in, you know, and and just throwing them into really tough situations and seeing how they do. There there are ways to get yourself noticed, just like when I was kicked out of the room and I started out and I wasn't invited to the parties and the dinners and all that stuff. I went and tried a case. I filed my own cases. I went and tried it and I won it. You know, I had an opportunity, you know, many years ago working with a major class action firm. And I'm talking like when I first started out, I remember being in a room full of experienced lawyers and then we were suing um, workers' comp carriers for overcharging on workers' comp policies. And they went around the room and said, hey, does anybody have any experience in underwriting workers' comp policies? I'll, I'll confess to you now, I didn't. But at the time, mm-hmm. I raised my hand and said I did. And then mm-hmm. I went out and I bought every resource I can get my hands on to learn how to uh, underwrite workers' comp policies so that I could ultimately get involved in taking depositions and become an essential player in the case. And these are just uh, these are just things I, I personally like to see in young people, that kind of resourcefulness and mm-hmm. hunger. And by the way, I would love to ask you that question based on the firm you built. I, I would love to ask you, what, how do people get recognized by John Quinn? In your well, uh, not just by John Quinn, but I think our firm generally. What uh, Chris, yeah. what I always tell people is that practicing law at the highest level is a labor yeah. labor intensive yeah. exercise. There are no Einsteins out there that can yeah. say, "Oh, I just got this great idea. We can all take the weekend off because yeah. we're going to save all this time." That yeah. that just doesn't happen in our line of work. It's it's really a That's commitment, right. a commitment of time. And a commitment, you know, energy and uh, mind share. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's really what we look for at our firm is that people, as you say, take the initiative, uh, bring new ideas to the table, and are prepared to make the commitment and spend the time, which I, I yeah. think is essential. In many of these multi-district cases, it seems to me that the real problem, everybody knows there's going to be a settlement. Often, there's going to be a settlement. Sometimes you have to do some of those, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, try a few cases. There's yeah. a name for that. I forget what you call it. Bellwethers. Bellwethers. Bellwether. I actually yeah. did. I went made a trip to Gainesville, Florida. The only time I've been there. I too. remember. <laughs> I, I knew all Last about year. it. Yes. So, yeah. uh, but I mean, oftentimes everybody in the room knows this is going to be settled. And the yeah. question is, how do you settle? How do you settle it? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> That that the answer to this question can almost change as the cases change, but at the end of the day, it really depends. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Like you you mentioned the NFL concussion litigation, that was a real problem for the NFL. It was a, and some refer to it as an existential threat. I don't know if that's really true or not, but they were getting bashed in the media and they were having you know they were having a lot of issues. Um, we also sued them. We had some pretty big motions pending, but we didn't get that. We didn't never got to the bellwether phase. Mm-hmm. We had preemption motions uh, argued and under submission to the court when we settled the case, and that was one that didn't require trials and bellwethers. You know, we we kind of knew how to get to the end game faster. With the bigger mass torts, sometimes it's and, and in defense of these defense firms who sometimes get accused of dragging it out. When you have a hundred thousand or fifty thousand cases filed against your client. You've got to kind of sort through the cross-cutting issues. What are the cases that really rise to the top? What are the ones that present a danger to the company? There might be some cases that are filed that frankly shouldn't have been filed. That does happen. Um, 
So it could take longer to sort that out. But, you know, if you ask me what's the one quality, it's building a dialogue between whoever the negotiators are on the defense side with the plaintiffs. And I think where I've had successes, I've, I've been able to, um, over, you know, almost 30 years now or 30 years, you know, build relationships with lawyers that I see time and time again. And they know that we can be, we can talk straight to each other. They can talk to me about the problems their clients confronting, the size of the problem. And I, you know, I can give them straight answers. And so, you know, negotiating is different than being a trial lawyer. It's a different, it's, it's a different skill set because many of the trial lawyers who try to cross into negotiating and I've done both like you, you, you can try cases and you can no- negotiate, but we're kind of a rare breed because trial folks sometimes are not that good at compromising <laughs> mm-hmm. and you've got to, you've got to be prepared to compromise. You're not, it, there is nothing perfect that comes out of a settlement. You, you, you strive for really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have these mass tort cases and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of claims, from the defense standpoint, it's a huge problem getting your arms around what is this really worth? Exactly. You know, the plaintiffs, it really worth? The, yeah. the plaintiffs will be floating the sky, huge numbers. Right. God bless yeah. them. You expect that. Yeah. But how do you get to a point where both sides can really handicap in some reasonable range? what the cases are worth. And bellwether trials, I suppose, are one way of doing that. What are yeah. some of the other ways that that is done? Well, bell, bellwethers are very important. They, they, they produce information about the case. Um, you know, there are also cross-cutting issues that could be ruled on by a court, Dalbert motions, you know, challenges to the science. Mm-hmm. If you win or lose that, it could, you know, plaintiffs are pretty good at assessing their chances at trial. You know, your chances go down if you lose some experts and some testimony that you're relying on. That's important. Um, you know, pretrial rulings on evidence. I've had cases where I was just pretty confident certain evidence that I had gotten was going to get in, and judges will either rule it out or limit you on the way, limit the ways you can use it. So those are those are all really important. I'm not saying every case requires you getting worked up for trial, but to be honest, in the mass tort world, it you really need to have two tracks going. You know, you have to have a litigation track going, and if you can also parallel with that have a settlement track and the, and you know where the settlement folks really know what's going on in the litigation side i think that's the ideal dynamic right. for a setup for when a you talk about key uh issues that cr- cut across the cases we had at least one of those in the earplugs case and that is yeah the defense was relying on i forget what it's called but it's basically a government procurement my shorthand yeah. was government, the government contractor the, yeah, the yeah. government made us do it basically yeah. and that was a defense uh and that was potentially a killer that's right (laughs) they lost the case they lost at the district court and then uh i know they appealed it and i kind of lost track of what happened then was there ever a court of appeals decision on that issue do you know we no. it was it was uh briefed it was argued and it was under submission with the 11th circuit probably for about six or seven months and we settled okay and you know as you know that this this case took some detours i mean it was uh they tried to um hide behind the bankruptcy code for a while. They filed the subsidiary, made the right. earplugs in bankruptcy. And right. we got the bankruptcy dismissed, thanks to one of your partners, Eric Winston. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so each of these cases are a little bit different, but what I'm hearing is having that dialogue, that ability to talk to defense counsel is very important. For me, it is. I'm not mm-hmm. saying every negotiator relies on that. Maybe some mm-hmm. folks, but but for me, the relate maintaining those relationships, have a trusting relationship. Uh, you know, sometimes 
when you're getting close in settlement and folks don't know about it, somebody has to go to you and say, hey, look, can you give me a little breathing room on a handful of these depositions? Well, we don't really want the CEO deposed and we're making real progress in settlement. Mm -hmm. Can you get me some breathing room there? And, you know, I think that's just something you need to have the ability to deliver. Um, And because, because at the end of the day, people say, why? That sounds weak. It's not. In a mass tort, there's only one path to justice for everybody, and that's through a global settlement. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you're going to try these cases, plaintiffs don't win them all. I mean, first of all, the court system can't handle thousands of trials. And even if it could, you're going to probably lose half or more. So if you really want to do a good job for everybody, for all the clients, you want to get, if they want, if, for there to be something for everybody, it will have to be in the form of a global settlement. What shape that takes could be many different ways. It could be a Rule 23 class action settlement. It could be you know, just a global settlement with standardized criteria, or they can settle, they can go law firm by law firm and try to settle their group of cases, you know, in Syriatim. But, um, but that's the only way that really makes sense. How often are uh, professional mediators uh, used to settle cases in these cases? Yeah, these days they're incredibly common. In fact, lately the trend has been in MDL courts for them to, to appoint um, settlement masters early in the case. Uh-huh. So that they actually kind of learn the case. And when you get to the point where the parties are ready to talk, they have an understanding of the wins, the losses, the rulings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think that's generally a good idea in these big cases. What do you do with, I mean, these MDLs, of course, are these are multi, multi-district litigation cases that are uh, gathered together for pretrial proceedings in one district court. And then the what's supposed to happen is if it's if it isn't resolved after discovery in the pretrial proceedings, the cases are all supposed to be sent back to the right. different district courts. Right. How about when you have state courts? That's how do you coordinate state court proceedings with federal court proceedings? You don't have the same MDL capability. You can't coordinate the cases in both justice systems, or or can you? Well. So there's a couple of things. States like New Jersey, California, and others have their own centralization procedures. So in California, for example, if you've got hundreds of cases filed, there, there you have a system there where the state courts can put those in front of one judge. Sometimes it'll go to LA, sometimes it'll go up to San Francisco, but it'll be one judge that will coordinate those proceedings. But there has to also be in these big litigations, coordination between the, the federal multi-district litigation and the state courts. And that's more art than science, you know, where people get, we try to get people appointed that are good at that, at coordinating so that, you know, you don't have defendants running into the federal court saying, my witnesses are being dragged all over the country being uh, deposed. Federal judges don't like that. State court judges don't like that because the whole purpose behind centralization is efficiency. So, so forcing some scientists to be dragged all over the country and get deposed over and over again isn't really fair. So we'll coordinate on depositions where we'll take a day or two and then the state court lawyers will take a day or two. And then when it comes to settlements, we typically build them or construct them in a way so they are also, the state court lawyers are invited in. And if it's a good settlement, they'll take it. Right. Let me ask, you know, you're known and i don't mean to embarrass you here. As okay. somebody who's, who's well-liked, the listeners, I think, can get a sense of your personality and get a sense about, <laughs> I, I assume you're on your best behavior, <laughs> a sense Try of why, why you're effective and why you're well-liked. And the, th- the remarkable thing is that defense lawyers say nice things about you. Uh, I'm sure you know, you've been practicing law enough to kind of have a sense of how you're perceived. 
I mean, how yeah. is it that you're you're able to pull that off? Why? why I mean, both sides of the V. Uh, people see you as somebody that you can work with. You know, that's. I, I mean, personally, I think that's one of the. If if somebody had said that to you, I would think that was one of the best compliments I could get. I really do strive for that because I try to be a straight shooter. I, I try not to I have, mislead. I have heard. I have heard that. You're, you're well, well I, I appreciate on the defense side. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I always, I look, I try to look past the little tedious nonsense that sometimes we in our profession, you, you know, get hung up fighting over. I try to see the forest through the trees where it's like, you know, somebody comes to me for a 45 day extension or, you know, an accommodation or they, you know, whatever it is, I try to always accommodate on a professional level, my colleagues, whether on my side or, or the other side and treat everybody with respect. And I find that that typically helps me get respect back in this on the settlement front. Um, I I don't overpromise, <laughs> and I don't say something I can't deliver. And I tried to build a reputation for negotiating really hard to get to the best deal I can. But then once the deal, once we reach a deal, I view myself as partners with the other side to see that the settlement is successful. And I will go out real hard, and I don't like to use the word sell the settlement because I'm hoping the terms sell it. But make sure that people really understand the deal we just cut. And, and you know, I in many of my deals, we've gotten very, very high participation rates. I mean, in Vioxx, which is going back, you know, 99.999%, you know, where we, we had blow provisions that were, you know, that were, we only needed 85% for the deal to go effective. But we got very high participation rates. In the NFL, same thing, Volkswagen. But again, these are, these are deals that offered very substantial compensation. Um, Chinese drywall. I was involved in that litigation. We rebuilt homes. Right. So, you know, um, so I, I hope that's it, but mostly, uh, you know, I just don't, um, I don't dissemble and I don't start trouble. And if somebody asks me to keep something in confidence, I do it. And now, uh, I understand you're pursuing, uh, uh, litigation involving ineffective decongestions i think we've all seen that in the news recently that some of these decongestions i haven't paid attention which ones they are exactly suppose yeah, don't don't do anything <laughs> is that right yeah. i mean which yeah 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 the, the fda actually um compiled a whole bunch of studies that were out there large and small and did a meta-analysis and looked at them all and concluded that phenylephrine which is the active ingredient that's supposed to work has no effectiveness at all with, like they couldn't point to a study that could show well, uh, it worked. Name some of the products that use this. That people Nyquil. 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 Yeah, that's a pot, that's a very common one. I um, thought that's worked for me for years. Puts has me it? To, well, it puts me puts to, you sleep. to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that ingredient works. <laughs> that ingredient works. But um, yeah, so you know, uh, but look, I can tell you, all, that's going to be a battle. I mean, some of the defense lawyers, again, that I've known for a long time, have said, "Hey, we're going to fight this. We don't agree." They say the, they, the FDA got it wrong. Our scientists say FDA got it right. Uh, but if it turns out that, that, that we turn out to be right and that ingredient had no effectiveness at all, well, that means that, that's a problem because when you sell a drug, all drugs have risks, even over the counter. But there's a risk-benefit analysis. So, you need, so, so to, to assume a risk by putting some foreign substance in your body, it's got to be a benefit. And if there's no benefit, you've only been exposed to risk. And that's never acceptable. So they're going to, that's going to be a big problem. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we'll be real interested to see how that plays out. Chris, thanks very much for talking with us. Enjoyed the conversation. Same here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's really great seeing you. This is John Quinn. This is Law Disrupted. And we've been speaking 
with mass tort lawyer extraordinaire and nice guy, Chris Seeger. <laughs> That's excellent. Thank you so much. That really was, that was fun. <laughs>